Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 12th, 2021. This episode 2825 of the Survival Podcast. It's time for an expert council Q&A show. Here's what we have on the lineup for you today. Backsweetening mead with Michael Jordan. How sustainable is the keto diet with Dr. Ken Berry? Doc Bones on the utility of an item called the D-Choker. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's for getting things out of somebody's throat so they don't choke to death and die. Testing a dual-fuel generator before you need it with Derek Don Pietro. Air earthworks for protecting roads from erosion with Jeff Lawton. Is it really worth it to grow food in very cold climate winters? Ben Falk. And why Bitcoin's real run is just getting started. That will be by me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. Uh, this should be a good episode for you guys today. I wanted to lead off today with a quote from uh, Nikola Tesla. That I think actually has a lot of utility today and with what's going on with so-called science today. He said, Today's scientists have substituted mathematics for experiments and wander off through equation after equation and eventually build a structure which has no relation to reality. The, the point of that is that you can theorize lots of things, but unless you actually test things and test them properly and build things and build them properly, you don't really have anything. You can call it science, but all it really is is nonsense. I'll let you take that one from there on your own. With that, let me remind you before we jump into today's show, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is by becoming a member or renewing your membership if you've uh, had a membership expire. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more. But if you use your discounts, your membership will more than pay for itself. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, today's subject, starting out with Michael Jordan with a segment on back sweetening your mead. Hey there, Survival Podcast listeners. From the me to the we, from the ganders to the gooses, to all of you catching my signal, I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company, talking about bees, looking into your apiary management, and making of crazy meads. Mead question from Gary. Hey Mike, what's the best way to deactivate slash kill yeast to make sweetened mead? Details. I'm brewing a one-gallon batch of watermelon mead. I use fresh watermelon and bottled a cold-pressed 100% watermelon juice. It sounds good. How everything I've read that all the watermelon flavors typically brewed out. I would like to add some more watermelon juice at the end and back sweeten it up and add some watermelon flavor. But I'm worried that I'm going to start back up the fermentation. And I would like to be able to store it in bottles unrefrigerated without them exploding. He also has a second part of this question. Is it possible to back sweeten and bottle a conditioned mead or cider or force carbonating is the only answer. So he's asking if he can carbonate a mead that he's back sweetened. All right, Gary. Thanks for the question. And I'm going to get right into it really hard. The best way to deactivate and kill yeast for back sweetening, and the best way to kill any type of yeast is just to use potassium sorbate. If you read the bottle, it'll tell you exactly the amount. 
to kill the yeast activation per gallon within 48 hours to one week. Uh, potassium sorbate and cold crashing will clarify and kill everything in it. So if you put the potassium sorbate in, put it in the refrigerator on Monday, pull it out on Friday, you'll be able to rack. It'll be clear. Everything will be ready to go. Now you've killed the yeast and all the stuff and it's, you've racked it and it's clear. Now it's very hard to get watermelon taste to stay. So I don't know what your starting gravity is. I don't know what your final gravity is. But what I'm going to tell you is that your alcohol content's going to change if you add anything to it. Liquid-wise per volume. So if you make a gallon, pour it in a two to three gallon bucket after you've done all the cold crashing and everything with potassium sorbate, taste it. And then add two to three cups of watermelon juice to it until you like the taste. Now remember, the more juice you add per volume, the alcohol content will be lower. So you can get good natural flavoring watermelon juice, but hopefully you're using uh, maybe, I don't know, four pounds of honey and a uh, champagne yeast like Red Star, which will eat all that sugar all the way down to where you're going to have a good honey flavor because it uh, for every five uh, for every pound of honey that you use, you get 5% alcohol. So if we put in four pounds of honey, you're at 20% alcohol. So the yeast will die from champagne around 17 to 19. So you're still going to have a good honey flavor and probably some watermelon residual because the sugars are going to eat the honey and leave some of that back in there. So use a little bit more honey, a stronger yeast, and uh, kill crash it. Throw it in a bucket. Taste it. Start adding uh, watermelon juice. Remember, if we're at about 18% alcohol by adding watermelon juice, we might be down to 12 when we're done. So that's something to think about when you add volume. Another cool thing to do is when you're all done cold crashing, ready to bottle, why don't you just throw that gallon jug back in the gallon and go ahead and throw in about maybe five watermelon Jolly Ranchers. Now it's going to give you a big, bold flavor. It's going to take a little time to dissolve. It's going to add a little more color to it. You're going to probably have to cold crash it again to get all the sediment from the Jolly Rancher stuff to settle. But then you're going to keep your alcohol content because the alcohol content was already there when you cold crashed it and potassium sorbate it and all that stuff, and you just flavored it. So one's natural, dropping the alcohol content, and one is not. So there's two ways to get your watermelon flavor after fermentation and some stuff to try. More honey makes it sweeter. And the different types of yeast. So I don't know the yeast you used and stuff like that. But they all do different things. Now, the second part of your question. And is it possible back sweeten, bottle, and carbonate? Well, yeah, you just can't use the potassium sorbate. Because if you kill the yeast, you can't carbonate. And that's how this works. So what I would do is I would do a three-time, a three-trip cold crash, put my jug in on Monday, pull it out on Friday, rack it, separate it, put it back in for a week, bring it out, rack it, separate it, put it back in for a week, rack it, separate it, and you're going to have a clear mead, but you're going to have some yeast activation in it because it isn't all going to be out, which is cool, right? Because if you have a little yeast in there, and, you know, you might have to play with it because I don't know what kind of yeast you're using. But 
you can grab a conditioning tablet from Brewer's Best. And basically what it is, it's just a little sugar tablet. And you add like, you know, three to five per 12 ounce bottle. The more you add, the more carbonation. All right. So I'm, I'm bottling a Braggot six ounce bottle. So I'm using two to three of them. Right. I'm just, uh, I'm getting uh, a good medium head. The, the package will tell you for a 12 ounce bottle, add three to five or it's, yeah, yeah, three to five, depending, you know, if you want little carbonation to max carbonation, but you're going to have to have the yeast eat that sugar. So cold crashing it a couple times, leaves the yeast in and then get, uh, some of these conditioning tablets from like Brewer's Bast or something. And like I said, I, you put in three or four per 12 ounce bottle, they'll dissolve, they'll carbonate that bottle and you'll be ready to go. Uh, anytime you carbonate anything, plastic bottles or flip top, <laughs> right? And I don't even like flip bop. I like twist tops because you can just like a Coca-Cola bottle. You, just, you shook it up. You just kind of blade it off a little bit as it goes down and then pour it. So don't use glass bottles with caps or corks because they'll pop out unless you use, if you're any type of, of conditioning where you're carbonating like this, you got to use champagne corks and wire them down. You have to, if you're not, you got to wax the tops. Most people are using flip tops, twist tops and prefer, I like twist tops with plastic bottles. Uh, save, save some two liter bottles and put it in a two liter bottle. Uh, save a couple Coca Cola bottles, put it in there. That way when they pressurize up, you won't have bottle bombs. You can always just bleed them off. And that's just something that, that's kind of fun to work with. Other than that, I suggest that if you want to make a carbonated mead and you want to do it the best, buy a gallon keg, three gallon keg, five gallon keg and force carbonate. And then you're going to be getting yourself a cooler and you're going to be making a, a tapper and a cooler and you're just going to get more involved. So potassium sorbate kills everything. Cold crashing leaves the yeast in. If you're going to be using conditioning tablets and, uh, you know, that's, that's about the best I could do for you at that point in time when it comes to that, hopefully, hopefully that helps you out. And, uh, you kind of like what's going on. It takes a little bit of time and practice to work with it, uh, to get the right amount of conditioning tablets per thing. You got to plate those a little bit. Cause like I said, I don't know the yeast you're using and how much sugar content's left and stuff. So, if you're not giving out meat as gifts and bottles, keg it. Put it in bigger bottles to drink it later. <laughs> right? Hey, I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I hope that I took your question and I hope I answered it well. Remember to always buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry to help them get going. And remember to help your fellow man. Because one day you're going to need help too. Oh, and by the way, Check us out. I just sold some beehives for my son because he can't keep them. And we just bought an entertainment company. Uh, axe throwing, jelly ball, midget wrestling, comedians. My son has just got himself a little entertainment company that he's starting to build off of. And new business venture for us. So thank you. And thanks for tuning into the Survival Podcast. 
I'll just add that a couple things. Number one, I, I made a watermelon mead from cold-pressed watermelon juice one time, and it was the worst mead I ever made. And um, my, I'm pretty convinced there was some sort of a wild-form yeast or uh, bacterium in that cold-pressed watermelon juice, and I did not um, pasteurize it because you pasteurize fruit juice too high a temperature, you end up with a really cloudy result in your final product. Um, so it might be something that you really need to be a little bit more careful with than some other stuff. I've never really had a meat go bad except that one batch, and it could have been something else. I'll just say that. My other thing is I'm not a big fan, as many of y'all know, on sweet when it comes to meats. Um, I understand the need for it in a situation like this where a lot of flavor gets stripped out. I would just say, though, kind of echoing what Michael had to say about alcohol content dropping, as well as I think that sweeter meats need to be full-bodied, high-alcohol meads. Something for sipping versus a quaffing mead, um, kind of a dessert drink, something like that. I think they just end up working out and balancing a little better if you bump them up a bit in their overall alcohol content. Uh, next up, we have a question on the sustainability of the keto diet for Dr. Ken Berry. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a listener question. This is from Michael, and it's a, it's a very well-thought-out question. I appreciate this question. Uh, if 70% of our diet should come from fat, if we're eating a ketogenic diet, how do we do that sustainably on a large-scale human population point of view if we should not consume plant fats? Uh, regardless of whether you, you count calories or not, 70% fat in the diet is a lot of fat. The average beef produces about 25% of its weight in fat. If you wanted to consume the entire animal with as little waste as possible, as uh, Michael does, then where, where do you get the extra fat? That's an excellent question. So first and foremost, it may not currently be sustainable with our current population and our current methods of farming. That I, I, I totally recognize that. I think Jack and I both are very common sense guys and we're ready to admit if there's a bigger problem. And so for your personal health, you need to, you need to eat a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet. Uh, if you're eating low carbohydrate enough, then you can play with the fat and protein. You might do 60, 40 fat and protein, or you might do 80, 20 fat and protein. Uh, different people feel best at different fat and protein. Ratios, but I, I agree with you. It is concerning. Could we scale up keto and feed the entire world a diet of 70% mostly animal fats, which I, I think animal fats are are healthier for us. I think that's that's how we became humans was eating animal fat, and so we currently might not be able to do that on a worldwide scale. But I think that uh, that we're all seeing a return to regenerative farming, and we're seeing a return to uh, incorporating animals. Even in, in uh, big monocropping farms, they're starting to plant cover crops and then letting cattle graze on that so that they, they stamp down the, the cover crop and they eat the cover crop. They turn the cover crop into fat and protein, which then can be eaten by humans. Uh, we're, it's probably not sustainable currently with our current farming models, but I think our current farming models are changing quickly. Now, will they change quickly enough? I don't know. Only time will tell, but this is a, this is a very valid question and something that we all need to be thinking about. And I think something that we all need to be helping with 
If you don't already have chickens in the backyard, two or three hens for your family, if you don't already have a couple of sheep on that acre that, that you just, you bitch because you have to mow it, why don't you get a couple of sheep and put on that? Why don't you buy a cow? Why don't you find a local farmer and encourage their economic situation by buying a quarter beef, half beef, or a full cow every year? The more all of us do things like that, not only that are that we're going to be healthier on a personal level, but we're going to help to heal our, our farming community and our farming system, which in my opinion is currently completely and thoroughly broken. Thanks so much for the question, Michael. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. So echoing what Ken had to say there, um, I agree that if we tried to have the whole world switch to keto right now, we would have a problem. Of course, this is kind of the same thing that you get when you tell somebody you're a voluntarist or an agorist, uh, an anarchist, what have you. They want you, okay, well then you must with your theory, be able to solve every problem in the human condition and make everything work perfectly, or your position is obviously crazy, right? Um, when the government already has every problem that they'll point to, they already have, and, and, and that it doesn't have to be perfect. It only has to be better, right? So I don't really think the fact that we can't feed the whole world keto is much of an issue when right now we have plenty of places in the world where people aren't fed as it is. Right? So, and not everybody's going to do it. Remember, keto advocates like Ken and I, we, we say this is what we think you should do, not this is what you need to do. The people that are saying what we have to do are the people in charge, and they want to feed you on soy, which is full of phytoestrogens and toxins and poisons uh, that both grow there naturally and have been put there by spraying the soy with, with you know, glyphosate and other herbicides and pesticides while it's growing, and then you eat it, right? So, like, just to, to point to any discrepancy or any problem does not negate the solution, especially when the existing solution has far more problems. We also have to, like, accept, again, not everybody's going to do it, so we don't need to get rid of all of uh, conventional cropping, but we need to move more and more away from it. And when it comes to actual sustainability... What is more sustainable than animal browses grass, animal shits on grass, animal moves, animal repeats, grass grows back? So we know that the, the mechanics of raising animals that graze and live on browse and graze and mast fall, etc., is in of itself infinitely more sustainable than plowing fields. It, it, it's not even a, there's not even a comparison there. So then when you bring up the beef, okay, but if we're doing this right, we're running on the same land in different timescapes, time stacking in different times, right? We're going to be running beef, and we're going to be running pork, and we're going to be running poultry, right? And then there's other things that can go into that mix, like um, sheep or goats or what have you. Right? And they all have different ratios, and some are more lean than others. But when we look at beef alone, and we try to say, well, can we, can we maintain a diet that high of fat with just beef? Well, it's going to be your prime cuts, etc., to do that. However, I'm going to tell you that a lot of the fat that's in beef right now is not used. We should be using liver. There's a lot of fat in a beef liver. There's a lot of fat in marrow. 
right? So there's a lot of that right now that we're not using that we could be. And then next is pork. And if we get off of, you know, the modern pig, which is relatively lean, and we go with more heritage breeds pigs, many of those pigs are about 50% fat by yield weight. Okay, so a pound of fat is a hell of a lot more calories than a pound of protein. And in things like uh, American guinea hogs, you'll get about 50% of the yield in, by weight in fat. So we can take things that are leaner cuts and we can cook them in the fat of other animals, which is, is very uh, often done. Additionally, Ken and I would tell you that, that dairy fats are fine. So there's another source of fat. And, and I know that Ken's big on, you know, we don't use vegetable oils, and I am too. It doesn't mean there are no sources of fat in nature that are vegetative. Avocado is fantastic. I know Ken's a fan of avocado as well. Avocado is incredibly high in fat. So there, there are other ways to do this than just cows, right? And I, I think that there's no doubt that we can transition to more of this. But I have no interest in a world where everybody has to be keto. Is keto sustainable for you if you want it to be? Yes. And the systems that produce meat through grazing systems, those systems are infinitely more sustainable than anything else we call agriculture. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. This one on the D-Choker for Doc Bones. Doctors, back-to-back here. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the Expert Council comes from David in Mississippi, who writes, This is a question for old Doc Bones. What do you think of the de-choker device? Would this be something good to have on hand, or is it just another gimmick? Thanks. David, the D-Choker, and a related product, the LifeVac, are suction devices meant to take the place of the Heimlich Maneuver and extract foreign objects from individuals who are choking. And you know what? From an engineering standpoint, the product makes sense. It's essentially a syringe with a one-way valve that allows you to suction things out by pulling on the syringe while pushing in the syringe doesn't push air in, possibly lodging the foreign body further inside the trachea. The part that goes on the face and mouth looks like a typical plastic face mask you'd see on an Ambu bag the paramedics use, except with the cylinder in the middle that's supposed to act to get the tongue out of the way. The website has claimed to have saved 144 lives since the company was founded in 2011, and there are testimonials as to its action, but there are apparently no hard scientific studies that determine whether it's effective or not on live humans, although there is a study that suggests it works on cadavers. I found this information elusive to find, by the way, but the device is FDA registered registered as a level 1 medical device, which is different than FDA approval. A class 1 medical device is a device that has a low to moderate risk to the patient and or user. doesn't say much about its effectiveness, though. Today, about 47% of medical devices fall under the class 1 category, and 95% of those are exempt from the regulatory process. So not a lot of oversight. The FDA does collect adverse event reports, and there is one from 2017 that goes like this. Quote, 
that the choker was used on a girl that was choking in a restaurant that nearly killed her until a physician came over and performed the Heimlich maneuver, unquote. I don't think they're complaining that the device was killing her. I think that it was just not working to remove the foreign object. Speaking of Heimlich, what does old Professor Heimlich have to say about it? Well, he's passed away, but he was skeptical of it when it began to be mass-marketed, and his son still believes the Heimlich maneuver to be the simplest, most effective way to deal with an airway obstruction. Not to mention cost-effective. The device costs 50 to 90 bucks, and it's supposed to be discarded after being used. The company admits the plunger-like product has never undergone a clinical trial on live humans. Despite the lack of scientific studies and only anecdotal evidence of its effectiveness, though, some school systems have purchased some of these items. The question I have is the same as with the suction kit for snake bites. When you have to act fast, don't you pretty much need to have the item in your hands at the moment the event occurs? You don't have a lot of time when there's no oxygen getting to the victim's brain. What about the victim? They're freaked out about choking. Can you get them to cooperate for a Heimlich maneuver better than explaining you're going to stick this plastic thing in their mouth and try to suction the object out? Perhaps a de-choker might be an intermediate step between a failed Heimlich, maybe, and a tracheotomy or cricothyroidotomy. But again, time is of the essence. Is there time for an intermediate step? How about as a bedside device at a nursing home or a pediatric ward? Maybe, hey, you got to use all the tools in the woodshed. According to a 2018 story on the product by ABC Action News, the CEO of the de-choker company, Alan Carver, refused to answer questions on camera, hmm. which all makes me wonder, if this device is so good, how come it hasn't become standard practice when the company's been around for 10 years? I'll let you decide that one. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission of putting a medically prepared person in every family by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Also, subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net and also our new survival medicine group on MeWe. Thanks again. That one's a big I don't know for me, but I, I do see it actually is probably valid for... You've tried to dislodge this. The person is now unconscious on the ground. And you nor anyone else around is qualified to take a steak knife and a pen into a tracheotomy. And, you know, when I was in high school and middle school, we got fairly advanced first aid training. It was part of our health classes. And... We were trained, basically, if you ended up in that situation, you don't do a tracheotomy unless you've been trained and you're not. It wasn't that advanced. And you basically start doing chest compressions, trying to get, and, and t rolling the person on the side and beating on their back, trying to get whatever it is out of them. So you're basically rendering CPR um, while the person's got an airway restriction. And I don't know if that's what, I don't know if anybody teaches that anymore. But that's what we were taught back then. And I would, I would much rather have this option. I agree that time would be essential, but a person can be under for a minute and recover, even maybe if they have some brain damage, they're still alive. So I don't know that I would rely on it, but I guess it it seems like it has some utility to me. Um, 
Next up, we have a question on dual fuel generators and testing them before we need to know that they work. From Derek Bonpietro. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a generator question up. I had a diesel engine question uh, that I was going to get to, but we're having a uh, snowmageddon event up here in New England, so I figured I'd bump this one up. Um, so we'll get that diesel uh, truck question back in the queue. Um, so I've got one from Matt in Missouri. Should you test out a new dual fuel generator with both fuels, or would one be sufficient? I recently bought a Duramax 8,000-watt gasoline-slash-propane generator. My understanding is that propane would require the least amount of maintenance and keeping up with rotating stored fuels. In the 10-plus years living in this area, we have not had a power outage for more than a couple of hours and just two or three times. So I don't expect to be a heavy user, and I'm looking for the simplest solution. Any maintenance tips would be appreciated. Matt. All right. Propane is a great fuel for a generator. The downside is that you have very limited storage capacity if we're using portable bottles. So this is great if you've got what they call the pig, which is a thousand gallon uh, submarine, if you will, that's typically uh, way out back in the yard or buried underneath the ground. And you can have basically for that size engine an endless fuel supply until you run out. Now I'm assuming that most people don't have that. They're gonna have a smaller cylinder. Propane is bad in that, you know, you gotta have metal cans laying around and you've got to pick them up, bring them somewhere to get filled. And typically a barbecue-sized tank is not going to have a very long run time. That's the downside. You can't really just take it to the gas station, fill it up real quick, and bring it back. you got to find a place that has propane, that is filling propane during a storm, if you're using portable cylinders. Now, having said that, you've got every other upside to using propane over gasoline. Now let's back up and talk about this Duramax generator that Matt purchased. He sent me the links. They run about $1,000. It's a dual fuel setup. Nice, nice generator. It's got multiple plug setups on the panel. It's got a voltmeter, which is really nice, so you can actually see what it's doing. Now, having this dual fuel setup, you have a hose with a quick connect that you're going to plug into the panel, and that's going to go to your propane cylinder or you're going to have a little slide knob that you're going to move over that blocks that port typically and that's going to be used for gasoline and then it just has a conventional tank on the top of the generator frame and you just fill gas up just like a normal generator. Personally I think these are really the best of both worlds. So you can run off propane if you got little short bursts of power outages you don't have to keep a lot of propane on hand if you don't have the big pig sitting in the yard but in a pinch, you got an extended outage. You can switch that guy over and start using gasoline. You know, then of course you can take the fuel out of the car with a siphon, or you can have some cans laying around. Having two fuels is awesome. You basically double the options when the power goes out. In my brain, the best case scenario is what you're going to use: the propane first, short bursts, switch over to gasoline. If you run out, you can go grab a can to a gas station. Most gas stations are open during power outages. Most of those have generators. Don't really see a lot of propane places open during outages. So that's a great option. You switch over, run it on gasoline, and then you can always go back to using the propane as your primary when you can get those cylinders refilled. A couple of barbecue-sized cylinders will get you through the outage that Matt is describing. So why not have a couple of those kicking around? You can, I don't know, use them on your barbecue and then use them on your generator. That's a great multi-purpose tool. Now, using either fuels is not really going to change the maintenance, quote-unquote, on the generator. You're still gonna have to do oil changes, the valve adjustments at the proper interval, changing out the spark plug, etc. You're gonna have a chart in the owner's manual. Typically, best case, do it every year, regardless of how much runtime you have. 
the propane is going to be easier on the engine. You'll see that running it with gasoline is going to make the oil dirtier, faster, and will probably start browning out or fouling the spark plug after extended run times versus the propane. Propane is super clean burning, so you'd be amazed at how long the oil will last, but this is a portable. You should probably do it every year. We're talking a quart of oil, maybe a quart and a half. Just change it. Now, when we're talking about, I don't want to call this maintenance, more of just like good practice, we want to keep gasoline out of this generator. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't run it on gasoline every once in a while to make sure the carburetor works, but gasoline doesn't store well. And we should be using the jack method, which is keeping a couple cans, rotating them through. Now, I live in an apartment. I have a big storage unit, which they really don't like having fuel in. But I've also got a Suburban with a 40-gallon tank. I've got a couple cans. i got a can on the truck that I use for work. So I've got some gasoline around that I can use. But I don't have the ability to store it. If you do have the ability, you should have a couple cans and rotate through them. You know, what happens if you run out of propane? Good to have a couple gallons of gasoline for the generator and for the car. So I would always recommend having some gas laying around if you can. Now, running the generator, we want to ideally run it on the propane. It's going to run cleaner. Now, it's not going to make as much power. You're going to see that running on a gaseous fuel might be derated slightly. But in the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. For the most part, propane is going to do the job unless you're really maxing this thing out. As part of your yearly rituals with the generator, you should be putting gasoline in it just a little bit just enough to get it running. We want to run it on the gasoline, and then at some point we want to run it out of gasoline. So maybe once or twice a year, we want to hook the generator up, put, I don't know, quarter of a gallon, half gallon in it, run it on the gas, actually power the house. It's good to run generators under load. It keeps the alternator magnetized, puts load on the engine, it burns off carbon. So run it for whatever length of time until it dies, and then you know you have no more gasoline in the tank and in the carburetor. Use the propane when power goes out. This way we know that the carburetor is going to work because what happens if, uh, I don't know, power goes out, you're running on propane, you go to switch it over, and then the gasoline side of the carburetor doesn't work, and you're out of propane, and so now you've got no options. Don't put yourself in that position. Test it every once in a while using both fuels, but never leave gasoline in the unit. Keep the gasoline in the cans and be rotating those through. My biggest recommendation, aside from maintenance and checking the valve adjustments, is keeping gasoline out of whatever you're running when it sits for long periods of time. It's the best advice you can get. Forget about the fuel additives. Don't spend the money. Don't hope that the gasoline is going to store correctly. Rotate through it if we're talking about gas. I think that's some sound advice. Some other sound advice is actually work the generator. Everybody that's got one, plug it into something, run it for 10, 20 minutes, let it load up, let it work. If all you're doing is just simply wheeling it out of the garage, firing it up, Oh, it runs 30 seconds, shut it off, put it away. That's really not helping the unit. Fire it up, put a load on it, make the thing struggle a bit. It keeps the alternator charged. Make sure the battery, if it's an electric start, is being charged. Some of these batteries do not charge when the generator runs. So that might be something you want to look up in the owner's manual for yours or whatever generator you guys have, or maybe ask the manufacturer. If that battery doesn't charge, like for example, I'm a Generac dealer, a lot of those portables actually require a wall adapter so you wheel the thing in your garage, you plug the wall adapter in, that trickle charges the battery. When you wheel the thing outside, you crank it over and fire it up. It's not discharging the battery because it's carbureted. It doesn't require 12 volts from that battery to run. But you're only going to get so many cranks out of it before the battery's dead. So in that case, you'd wheel it back inside when you're done, plug it into the trickle charger, and it just kind of tops it off. Your unit might charge the battery while it's running. So that's other maintenance that's going to happen if you let the thing run for 10, 15 minutes. It'll top the battery off on its own. 
You don't have to plug it in. Well, Matt, hope it answers that question for you on generator maintenance. Again, I cannot emphasize enough. On the one side, keep the thing maintained. Put an hour meter on it. See how long it runs. Make sure you're tuning it up and specifically adjusting the engine valves at the proper interval. The other side of the equation with the fuel, use the propane as your primary source, but put gasoline in it and make sure it runs on gasoline every once in a while. If anybody is looking for a affordable DC power supply solution for running an inverter or charging batteries as part of a solar and battery power system, check out the affordable DC generators for your solution. Thank you for the question, guys. Take care. Next up, we have a question about preventing erosion on roads using earthworks. With that, we'll go ahead and turn it over to Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia again. And uh, we have a question here about earthworks um, in relation to uh, how to keep a road from washing away. Now, the steeper a road, the more water bar you need to put in. So every like, 20 yards, 20 meters or so on a steep road, you put in a water bar, um, which is like a speed bump, and take the water off to the side. Um, you need it at about 20 to 30 degrees angle off right angle to the road. So you take a nice sweep sideways, slightly off contour, take the water off the road. Now, if you're coming downhill, you obviously still have... Um, the need to take water sideways, but a certain amount's traveling down the road, and that's what's causing the wash away. When you take the water sideways, and you take one side off the road, no problem there, one side in and into the inside, into the hillside, and there you have to have a V-drain that has the capacity to carry the volume of water being run off half of the road for the distance it has to travel before it hits a pit. Now you have a big pit, really reasonably big, three, four feet by three to four feet square, and, a, and and then a pipe going under the road. Now, the pipe needs to be set in. Um, usually, the, this pipe's about a foot across, 300 mil, um, and, and it, it doesn't sit on the bottom of the pit. It sits just off the bottom, an inch or two off the bottom of the pit, so that dirt and gravel and things can, can gather in the pit uh, below the bottom of the pipe. But the pipe carries the majority of water off the road. So again, you're taking water off the road, particularly off the inside of the road. The steeper it is, the more pits and pipes that you have taken water from the upside, from the cut side, off the V-drain, into the pit, through the pipe, and gone. Right. So it, the steeper it is, the closer they are. 20 meters is very close. That's a steep road. 50 meters is is quite close. That's quite a, you know, that's, that's a bit of a hill. And then if you've got reasonably flat road, every 50 meters is overkill, but it means you have a road you never have to repair again. It's all about how you run the water off. V-drain, pit, pipe, and water bars on the surface to take it sideways. It might be inconvenient to slow down for a water bar, which is like a speed bump, but we'll save the car because your road won't be so damaging to the car, and it will save you money. You won't have to keep rebuilding the road. Now I've got a really interesting one for you. This is from Ben Falk, and it's on, is it really even worth it to drop, try to grow food through the winter in extremely cold climates, like where Ben lives in, 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 in Vermont, you know, in, in kind of southern central Vermont. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of validity to what you're about to hear. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole System Design. Question about is it really worth it to try to grow 
food essentially in the winter in a very cold climate, um, gardening. And I, it's a great question. I'm really glad you're asking that because a lot of times people see like Elliot Coleman's books like you referenced or just examples of, of people supposedly growing food in very cold climates in the winter and they go to great lengths to do it. We, we've done that. We've, we've gone to great lengths to heat greenhouses. But like you said, there's a lot of infrastructure and cost and time and energy that goes into doing that. And is it really worth it? For the most part, I would say no. And here's why. And I'm, I'm speaking with my, to my context. Primarily, and I'm in zone four slash five, and I'm in the mountains. So it's quite cloudy in the winter, you know. Most of the time between mid-November and mid-late February, it's cloudy, like 60 to 70% of the time at least. And the days are really short. I'm at 44 degrees north. So the, there's not much sunlight to work with or even light to work with. So heat, what we realized early on when we heated our greenhouse both with a wood stove and with a Jean Payne compost mound is that you can heat your your greenhouse all you want, and you said you're, you're in Michigan, similar, very cloudy place. You can have all the heat you want in the world, but you don't have enough light a lot of the time. So unless you're going to go to the lengths of like heating and lighting a space that's thousands of dollars to build, probably many, to just get some greens that you really don't even need in the winter if you store food well or buy some greens or just go without and get your vitamin A, especially from other sources, um, it's hard to make it worthwhile. Certainly from an energy trade perspective, it's it's kind of crazy, you know, to uh, to burn either, you know, a quart or two or three of wood or the equivalent amount of, of propane or diesel and energy to just get, you know, a thousand calories a week maybe or, or less. Um depending on the scale you're doing it. So generally, it's a great question. It's a great question. And generally, I think the answer is no. If you're in a lot sunnier climate and and further south, I think maybe it could be worth it. What we've found, we have a glass greenhouse and we have a bow frame greenhouse that we've experimented heavily with. And I found that I can overwinter spinach, mash, kind of arugula, parsley, and kind of cilantro on a winter that's not super harsh in the bow frame under two layers of two and a half ounce reme row cover and the reme sitting on the ground not in hoops or then it definitely won't it's the ground still freezes in that the delta t between inside and out is not much in the in the uh bow frame greenhouse it was just film on, on the on the frame if i had uh polycarb that probably would be a a value add that might be worthwhile. You might spend, let's say, a thousand dollars on polycarb twin or twin or triple wall, and then you might get like a delta T change in temp from inside to outside to but instead of like two degrees at night, which is what we get on that or so, you might get six to eight, but that's still not enough to keep the ground from freezing pretty hard, even with remay on the ground. And you know, a lot of stuff's not that happy in that situation. But what we found is we can overwinter. You're not going to grow anything in the winter, but you can certainly get a big crop 
of greens going in late summer, early fall, and then just protect it and mostly keep it live. Also, chard we keep alive, too. So then you're starting to eat greens in March versus in late June if you're starting from seed. So that's a massive win. Overwintering's great. Don't want to knock that at all. It's just the growing it it part is not what's going to happen. It's going to sit kind of still and it's going to start moving when the day when the light really comes back out and the temps aren't so harsh um in our glass greenhouse which is also sunk three feet into the ground unlike the other one and it's insulated on the north wall and it's only two-thirds glass on the ceiling there's a photo of in my book and i'm gonna have a book revision coming out actually in six eight months which is going to have a deeper dive on greenhouses um because i really only started into a lot of this r&d as the book was going to press six, seven years ago, um, there's a Delta T of like at least 20 degrees on the cold nights or more. I mean, it could be 15 below Fahrenheit and it's still like 15 inside. Now I put Remay down on that and you're going to start overwinter any hardy green. Problem with that is though, then you get a lot of pest problems if you don't let the ground freeze. So freezing has a role. Um, it's a complex. I'm going to have a large chapter on this in the, the new book edition. So I'm not going to get to it in five, eight minutes of a uh, of a voice answer. But um, that's a little bit of the tip of the iceberg. It's a lot of infrastructure for not much benefit. I think the sweet spot probably isn't a glass greenhouse unless you have money to really spend and you have a lot of other reasons like propagating nuts and seeds and creating like a really rodent proof space, which does have its value. We can propagate a stratified seed, tree seed really well in that glass house because it's rodent proof. Although well, once we put quarter inch hardware cloth on the north wall, which had foam insulation and still does, but it was being passed through by rodents after about year five, it's rodent proof. You have to have at least quarter-inch hardware cloth on everything or, or metal window screen and or concrete or glass or metal, sheet metal, in order for rodents not to just totally invade the space and wreck everything at some point. So everything else is kind of translucent to rodents after a while. They will figure out their way in. Um, and a, a film, a house covered with film or even polycarb eventually is going to be accessed by rodents. So that's a big deal if you're trying to do anything with nuts or seeds, like nut, nut tree seed propagation. Um, so they're all awesome at starting a garden, and that's their primary use. Um, and for that alone, they're really valuable. The bow frame greenhouse, which I've got some photos of on my Instagram, and it's very, it's let's say a few hundred dollars versus 20,000 plus dollars is still really great in the summer and it's really great for starting a, a garden in the late winter spring you do need some supplemental heating like heat mats uh, in in mini field tunnels to keep stuff from freezing too solid or from freezing at all like in march april if you get a cold streak in april and you've got tomatoes started at that point you need to keep stuff above about 45 degrees um and i found heat mats are great for that um with just remay, two and two and a half ounce remay over them, like little mini field tunnels, essentially over your seed flats, 22 inches wide or long. Um, so that works great. Um, big fan of the bow frame. The other more involved greenhouse that's in my book now, a little bit, there's at least a photo of it, is, you know, it's a lot of expenditure for the output, but it is very high performance, except not in the summer because it's thermopane doesn't let that much light in really all in all. There's way more to talk about, but that's a start. Good luck. 
So I, I largely agree with that as I look out on the frozen wasteland that is my backyard right now and plants that I've had and held over for three seasons now are giving in to this sustained, brutal cold that's typical. Like, this is a typical, and it's, you know, it's, it, when my winter hasn't even really started yet, they're already getting stuff like this where Ben's at. And when I look at that and I think about, you know, how much sun you get, how much light you get, I do think often that greenhouse growing in some climates is probably not worth doing. Now, if you get into geothermal energy um, and geothermal greenhouses, and I'll put some links in the show notes today to some stuff I've put up about that on my Odyssey channel, I think you can do it. But also, again, I'm back to the place that I've seen this done the most is places like Nebraska and all. They're a little bit further south. They have a little bit more light. So Ben, I think, is right about the light. However, this is why I think that preppers who want to eat fresh vegetables throughout the year, at least salads and stuff, really should look into growing indoor with hydroponics at least part of the year. Because especially in a climate like I'm in, where you know, occasionally we get a brutal winter like we're getting this year. And you can still grow indoors. And the other side of it is, many climates you get a period in the summer of about a month and a half to two months where it's brutally hot and it really knocks everything back. And then you can grow indoors. So I think sometimes when I talk about growing hydroponically indoors, people are like, oh, man, you know, that's a lot of energy and whatever. It's really not. You're using very efficient LED lights uh, with Kratky or simple circulating systems. You can uh, do it very low-tech and very inexpensively, certainly much less money than a greenhouse, even a small one. And um, you can have that fresh vegetation during those periods of time. And you know the nutrient profile because it's, you know, you're controlling the mix. And again, I know some people are like, but it's, it's, it's fertilizer, it's my mineral. In the end, a, a molecule is a molecule. I, I said this with the show with Nick yesterday. I'm not in love with how they get some of the fertility, uh, how do they mine it, but it's there. And it is a valid tactic. And we may be heading into some periods where, boy, you know, I'm glad I have 50 bucks worth of hydroponics fertilizer and I can grow food for three years. With, with just a few lights and, and some, you know, drain pans or something. Um, I'm just saying, it's something to consider, and it is far more productive per square foot than a greenhouse when you're in a climate like Ben's in. So I'm not saying it's end-all, be-all, and everybody should do it. I'm Just something to consider, and it will. Uh, I'll mention it again when we get to our item of the day. I want to talk to you guys a little bit today uh, in my segment. It'll be a short one uh, about Bitcoin. And I know when I talk about cryptocurrency, there are people in this audience that just want to tune out. I, I, I'm basically at this point saying, look, guys, please stop being in denial of reality. Please stop being in denial of reality. This has now become not just mainstream, but it has been accepted by the people who were trying to kill it just a few years ago. And they now know that they can make money out. Let me read you news out in the past couple days. Just, just the headlines. I got links to all of them in the show notes. How crypto, ado uh, how crypto adoption by companies like Visa, PayPal, and Tesla is making a network effect. Uh, Wall Street banks inch closer to adopting Bitcoin. Long-awaited Bitcoin ETF could finally get approved this year. 
Bitcoin, while a wave of huge companies like Tesla rushing to invest could derail the stock market. I'll give you a hint. It's because it's all denominated in dollars. Um, J.P. Morgan will offer Bitcoin trading if there is client demand, says COO. Uh, that's all this week. That's all this week. And I know the flood is, India's going ban it. I don't care what India does. I really don't. Um, I will take MasterCard, MasterCard, no, I'm sorry, Visa, v and MasterCard has to come next. That's what was, I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but I will take the, the entire global Visa network saying we're going to allow rewards and settlements and payments in Bitcoin on the Visa network. It wasn't that long ago that Visa put in policies that made it impossible for you to use a Visa card to buy cryptocurrency on exchanges like Coinbase, where you had to use a wire transfer. It cost more. It took longer. You couldn't just use your credit card and buy it like you can buy anything else. You know, I mean, I can literally buy any piece of crap, useless garbage I want to from China, right? But I can't buy Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum with it. That, that's what they did. And now it's part of their settlement PayPal has has adopted Bitcoin. I know when people look at what PayPal and Visa are doing, they say, well, it sucks to hold crypto there. I agree. I agree. If you're holding crypto that way, I think you're not doing it right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What, what matters is, all of the sudden, people who always thought, oh, it's just a scam, they just listened to the idiots on on. Uh, MSDNC or whatever, bashing it. All these morons talking about how, you know, Paul Krugman, right? He's supposed to be a genius. Oh, it's just garbage. It's baseless. It has no value. I mean, Krugman is the guy that way back at the dawn of the Internet said he thought that long-term it would have about as much impact on society as a fax machine did. So, I mean, this is not the place to... Like, the people that are most negative on this, and still negative are people with track records of being obscenely wrong. Obscenely wrong. But what I've been getting pushback on my videos lately about is why would the billionaire class get into Bitcoin knowing it would drive the price up and help all the people that already have Bitcoin? Because they don't care if they help all the people that already have Bitcoin or not. They care that they make money. People act in their self-interest. And these people, when you're talking about this institutional money, these are power-hungry, money-hungry bastards. Okay? And all people act in their self-interest. And to these people, self-interest is more money and more power. And they're in a position now where they finally realized, you can't kill this thing. You can't. And if you try... You will only drive it first underground and then make it more powerful. And, and cryptocurrency has become kind of like a hydra that every time a head is chopped off somewhere, two come back. And there's a point you get to in that where you're the elites and you say, so, if you can't beat them, join them. And the reason they'll do this is they will become obscenely wealthy by doing so. Obscenely wealthy. Now, don't think there won't be you know short positions and volatility up and down and up and down and up and down. But you can only play that game so much with this particular asset. Please stop listening to people saying it's based on nothing. There's no intrinsic value to it. The fact that one person 
can transact with another person and know the transaction is secure and mostly private because you know it's a public blockchain, but you can have a fairly private transaction between Japan and Egypt. And when they but Bitcoin fees are high compared to wire transfer fees for that application, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're high compared to what? A, uh, Litecoin? Sure. But again, Bitcoin is the digital reserve currency. That's what people mean when they say Bitcoin is digital gold. As an asset, a unit of Bitcoin, a single Bitcoin, is far more scarce than an ounce of gold. Far more scarce. And its utility exceeds that of gold as a payment solution, despite some of its limitations. And I want you to think about, from a standpoint of wealth security for the individual. Let's say that I have, I don't know, a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Or I have a million dollars worth of cash, cash money. Or I have a million dollars in a bank account. Or I have a million dollars in gold. Any one of those four. And let's say that I need to leave one country and go to another. Which one puts me in the greatest control of my wealth with the least possibility of seizure by the scum that run the various countries of the world? My cash is big and bulky. It can be seen. And the very fact that I have it makes me guilty of something. Right? Same thing with gold, except it's heavy. And it's easily detected with metal detectors. If it's in a bank account, it's public as it can be, and it's subject to massive amounts of regulation. If it's Bitcoin, I can literally have some information in my head. No way that anybody can even know it exists. Step off a plane in France or Sweden or Belgium or Australia or wherever the hell, Mexico, whatever, and have access to my money. And if I'm smart, I might have it in broken into pieces, so even when I'm accessing it, if that was detected somehow, you know, would you rather have 10 dimes or a dollar? If you're smart, 10 dimes. If you lose one of the dimes, you still have 90 cents. So maybe it's broken into $100,000 or $50,000 blocks in various parking locations, so to say. You see what I mean? Like That alone is incredibly valuable. When you add to it the scarcity and the first-mover advantage, and it acting as a reserve against other cryptos, and now you start to see this institutional money come in. There is only one thing that can happen from that, and that is explosion in price. And that kind of money coming in has only just begun. And every time a billionaire, not a Bitcoin billionaire became a billionaire from Bitcoin, but a billionaire buys Bitcoin. Every time a Dorsey, a Jack Dorsey, who just bought a bunch of Bitcoin, right, Every time a Jack Dorsey or a Mark Zuckerberg type, Zuckerberg, so I know, has not, but when anybody like that starts buying Bitcoin, the odds that the federal government is going to get try to get rid of it go down. Because those are the people, those are the people that write the laws through their lobbyists, and they act in what? Their own self-interest. When you start having one of the largest payment processors in the world, integrate something into its network. It becomes very precarious for a government to get in the way of it. 
because it starts to screw up their vaulted economy. It could be the case that it might be cryptocurrency that saves the economy as we have completely devalued the dollar. It may not. I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it could be the case. It could be what props up a lot of zombie companies who are on the edge of oblivion. Why do you think they're doing it? MicroStrategy, that, 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 that event that I talked about earlier this week, apparently they had something like 7,000, ex- I thought it was a few hundred. It was thousands of executives of major corporations went to learn how to properly integrate cryptocurrency holdings into their business. And at the same time, you have so-called experts saying things like, ah, oh, MicroStrategy is a, a sorry-ass company. There's no way they, they're just idiots. And it was irresponsible and reckless to put the money that they did into Bitcoin, which has made them incredibly financially stable, by the way. So the experts are saying a move that worked out really well was dumb. Maybe it's time to stop listening to experts. Now, as I always say when I talk about this, don't liquidate your kids' college fund. Don't liquidate your retirement account, right? But if you are not yet participating in this, it is probably time to take some money that you can afford to lose, that you're not going to have massive heartburn over if Bitcoin, you know, if you buy in at 47 grand and Bitcoin drops to 25 grand, you're not going to you're not going to lose your mind about. I'm always very cautious with this. But what I've said over and over and over for years, buy some Bitcoin, buy some stuff with Bitcoin, keep a little bit. Buy some stuff, buy some Bitcoin, buy some stuff with Bitcoin, keep a little bit. And the part that you're buying and then spending should be things you are going to buy and spend on anyway. That way you learn how to use it. Yes, get some exposure to some of the other currencies. I know some of you people are big fans of the whole Roger Ver, Bitcoin Cash thing. But in that war, let me be blunt. Bitcoin Cash lost and lost badly. Because instead of presenting itself as simply what it is, a better currency to use for day-to-day transactions, it tried to get rid of It tried to overtake. It tried to beat down. It went to war with Bitcoin, and it got its ass kicked. And of course it did, because so I've said this before too. I don't care that you're better for buying a scone and a coffee. So is Litecoin. So is a hundred other cryptocurrencies that have lower fees, you know, faster block times, etc. It's not the point of Bitcoin at this point. And with Lightning Network, it probably will be able to do that at some point. I mean, we're literally going to get to a point where I think you'll start seeing things priced in like Satoshis. I I know that sounds insane, but everything that I've said about this has happened. Sometimes I didn't get timing right. But every person I know that took my advice on this over the long term and was cautious about it so that they learned as they went... Seems pretty happy. Seems pretty freaking happy. And it amazes me how people today are still in complete denial of this. And I really think it's bitterness. I really think it's bitterness. I think it's they were told, they were told, they were told, and now they're angry that they didn't. So they they have a cognitive dissonance where they cannot accept that this can possibly be the case. 
And the, the argument, like, well, it's, it, there's nothing backing it. There's nothing backing the United States dollar except for debt. And an edict of force by our government. I don't want to hear about, well, Bitcoin's energy load is... What do you think that all the shit, all the money that goes around all the world is, 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 is moved by freaking jelly beans that are farted out of the ass of a unicorn? What do you think a data center at Chase Bank looks like? The, the, the comparisons that were made, are just, I won't even get into. They're woefully inadequate. But you know what you really need to look at if you want to talk about energy required to prop up a currency? How much energy does it take to prop up the United States dollar? How much energy does it take to pop up the United States dollar? I mean petroleum. I mean, it is the petrodollar after all now, isn't it? How do you think we have enforced the dominance of the dollar in the world with a blue water navy and a big-ass army and a bunch of nuclear bombs? And the single largest user as a group of fossil fuel and energy on planet Earth is the United States military. And without the United States military, our dollar would already be devalued to zero. Don't, don't be confused by any bullshit anybody pulls out of their ass about, well, you know, the United States and our freedoms, that's why. No. We have the dominant world currency for one reason and one reason only. We have the most effective force from a military standpoint that the world has ever known. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to go to war with anybody. But that's the thing. Nobody wants to go to war with us. Nobody capable of going to war with us wants to go to war with us, for damn sure. Because they know it's incredibly bad for both sides. And we have, because of the timing, because of the way we came out of World War II, we own that dominant position, but it is enforced at the point of bombs and missiles and submarines. And I know that's hard to accept, but you give me a better explanation for the retained standard of the dollar is the dominant world currency. Go ahead. I'll wait. You got nothing, do you? Nothing. You got a currency that's been devalued by like 99% now since, since the Federal Reserve took over in, in 1913, and devaluing is the plan. And yet, it's the currency that the world uses. And this whole shit about, you know, well, they use Bitcoin for crimes. The number one currency, the number one unit of currency used for crime in the world is the United States $100 bill. It is the number one form of currency of organized crime, is the $100 bill. And it's valuable everywhere in the world because of the way we use force to, to, to make it so. Bitcoin did what it did against all odds with zero force, with 100% voluntary participation, and anybody that tells you that something that's able to do that is not backed by anything, is to be blunt, a fucking moron. You're a fucking moron if you say that. From anything approaching an informed position. If you feel that way, but you don't know anything about it, I understand. But the people that are supposed to understand economics... The people that have done things like former chairmen of Federal Reserves, bankers, investors that make that statement is either a blatant lie or the person is mind-numbingly fucking stupid. And part of it is a block of the mind. This can't be happening. But there's a point 
there's a point where a whole bunch of those people start going, well, shit, it is happening. Oh, look what happens when we buy in. And again, when you look at the quantity that's actually available, 18 million Bitcoins currently, 18 million and change currently in circulation, but there's not 18 million available. There's not 18 million available. Do you get that? There's maybe 5 million up for grabs at the most at any given time that somebody will sell if the price is high enough. You get institutional money pouring into that and what's happened will look like it just got started because it has. You want me to put it in perspective for you? General Electric has about 8.7 billion shares outstanding of stock. 8.7 billion shares in one stock and Bitcoin is limited to a total number of 21 million. And we got until uh, 2040, until the last Bitcoin's mined, and every three years the amount being mined gets cut in half. Once you understand that, you should understand what's what has to happen next. And people say, is there any way that you could be wrong? Yes, there is. And I, it's, it's, it's a valid question, and I think it's important that I tell you the way I could be wrong. It could be all the billionaires are getting together, driving the price up, and they already know that they're going to dump it. But there's a point where greed kicks in on greed. You understand that? And we got here without them. We got to where we are without them. So you could have like a move, like a big short move or something like that. But I think even if you get that, it's temporary. Because you now have global payment solutions incorporating Bitcoin into what they do. And that makes the person who would never get involved go, well, it must be legitimate. Because we have conditioned people to do what in this country? Believe in authority. To follow authority. To follow their training. Well, when the Visa logo is next to it, it's okay now. I'm not going to talk about this a lot on air for a while now. I've talked about this heavily since 2014. I've explained it over and over again. I always get, I literally get hate mail when I talk about this subject. If I didn't think it was one of the most important things for people to grasp and understand in the modern world, I wouldn't endure the shit that I do over it. But all I can say is all the people that have been pointed out to me that tell me I'm wrong. Like, this guy says this and this guy. They've been wrong over and over and over and over and over again. And the next time you hear somebody say that Bitcoin's going to be dead, I want you to, to search for the following. 99 Bitcoins obituaries. And I want you to start reading all the times Bitcoin has died since it started. And at some point, you might just start realizing that the people telling you this do not know what they're talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. What if you're thinking, I would love to have some cryptocurrency, but I don't have any money to buy any cryptocurrency with? Okay, fine. I have a suggestion, a serious suggestion. I suggest... That number one, if you are a YouTube creator, you get on Odyssey. And if you would please follow my link today, um, 
if you're if you're not using Odyssey yet and sign up from the show notes today, I'll get like eight LBC coins when you do and invite your friends using your invite link and and earn some uh, Odyssey cryptocurrency. Put out your content on Odyssey and get tipped in that instead of paid by Google's crap ads because they are crap ads. If I see that cake ad one more time for sending cakes to people, I'm going to shoot myself on YouTube. And you know I make a, a fraction of a fraction of a penny on every uh, ad exposure on YouTube. It, just, it adds up. But I already make more money as a creator on library with about 10% of the subscribers. I mean, really think about that. Really think about that. So you can do that. And the other thing I really recommend people start doing, and this one's newer to me, but so far it's, it's, it's worked out fine. There's a company called PreSearch. P-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot org. They're a search engine. You set up an account. All you need is a name and an email address. Immediately you have a crypto wallet. They have a token a coin called Pre, P-R-E. I think it's worth about eight cents right now. Up, down, sideways, I don't know what it's going to do. But the search engine works as good as Google. It's blockchain-based. They don't record any of your information. And every search you run, you get a quarter of a Pre, and you can get up to four Pre a day. I have a referral link for that as well in the show notes. Just start using Odyssey and Pre-Search. And you'll start earning a little bit of cryptocurrency. And I know it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but I'm just going to ask you this. What if you had earned, was it 32 cents on pre-search? 32 cents a day on searching every day that you've ever used search engines at any you know significant amount since you started using search engines. And you didn't have to do anything else. You think that 32 cents a day might have added up to something? I'm just saying, there are ways to get involved other than direct monetary acquisition. The best way to start buying cryptocurrency for dollars, if that's what you want to do, buy some Bitcoin, Coinbase. It's easy. There's a link in the show notes for that as well. And yeah, I'll make 10 bucks if you use it. And after you fund your account with at least $100 worth of Bitcoin, not counting the fees, it has to be a full $100 of Bitcoin in the account, you will get $10 in Bitcoin extra and so will I. So it works. You can sign up. There's a link. You can sign up and get like five bucks in Bitcoin, or you can use my link and get ten. I think I'm, I actually think that referral program's like we're grandfathered into it because we've been in it so long. I don't even know if you can get that anymore. I'm, I'm not sure. But the other thing is, and I, I, I've got my nephew wants me to call him and talk to him about this today. You know, you always hear from people when it's on the top of a bull run. I've been telling them, and this, this is my nephew whose wife is an Instagram model. These guys make money, like six-figure salary money. And I've been telling them to buy a little bit of Bitcoin and just to take it as payments for their memberships for years. He called my wife. He said, I need to talk to Jack about this, and I already know I'm an idiot. Right? At least he's in the right state of mind. But now I want to be cautious with him. So this is my final warning. Like I'm going to tell him, hey, be careful how much money you put in here. I don't know what's coming in the next two or three weeks. Long term, I think you're good. But you know, going in over time, but above all, If you sell something, take cryptocurrency for it. Please. There are people out there right now, you're listening to me say this today. If you had done what I had said, just with taking payments and saved half of what you made, like 50% of all your crypto sales, you kept the cryptocurrency, you'd be a millionaire today without ever putting a dime in. Now, do what you want with that information. Let's go ahead and wrap things up. Remember, if you like this show and the work that we do, 
and you want to support us, uh, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And no matter what you buy, you'll help support us in the work that we do. Today's item of the day is the Master Blend Hydroponic Fertilizer. I decided to bring that around again today because it's such a long-term prep. Um, the 25-pound kit will run the vertical farm that I've actually changed completely at this point, but the way I had it configured for three years, for 50 bucks. It's pretty powerful. And that would be assuming you're running it year-round, which I, don't, I would never do anyway. So it's an incredible prep, but there's something you need to know about it. It's incredibly hydroscopic. It sucks up moisture out of the air. When you get it, it'll be in sealed bags. It'll be fine. When you open those bags, put them into something airtight, absolutely airtight, or it will cake up, stick together, and get ruined, especially the actual, like it comes with three bags. The, the, uh, the main formula, the main broad spectrum, that stuff will, like this yellow goo will come out of it, so... You know, I had enough for three years. I had to buy some more. Just, just my little bit of advice there. With that, uh, let's wrap things up with the song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Eric Church, and it's called "Stick That in Your Country Song." And I think a lot of people might hear that title and think it's one of these country songs where you've got like kind of an attitude outlaw country guy basically mocking other country singers or something like that. It's not. It's actually a call on artists uh, and writers to get more real with music. And not just the things that we normally think of in country music, but the really hard things happening to people all over the country, we should be talking about and singing about. Because people have their mind opened by music. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Take me on up to Detroit City. Jails are full, the factory's empty. Mama's crying, young boys dying Under that red, white, and blue still flying Drop me off in Baltimore Where every other winner's got a plywood board Where dreams become drugs and guns The only way out is a shoot or run Stick that in your country song, yeah Take that one to number one, yeah Get the whole world singing along, yeah Stick that in your country song, yeah A man coming back from war, a 23 going on 54. He lost a friend, his side, his hand. Baby girl, he'll never see again. Stick that in your country song, yeah. Take that one to number one, yeah. Get the whole world singing along, man. Stick that in your country song, yeah.
be back in a red brick school. The kids are climbing off the wall.